Hello, it's Paul Scott here, and today I'm interviewing Richard Harpham, CEO of XP Factory, ticker XPF. So, hi, Richard, and welcome. Good morning, Paul. Great. I saw that, coincidentally, you did a, a recent interview with Vox Markets. I think it was yesterday. Um, I didn't know that was, was happening. Obviously, it's a complete coincidence that I asked to interview today. So I think the Vox Market interview was brilliant, so I'm referring the listeners to that. And I've structured these questions so that hopefully there's not too much overlap with it. Um, so, okay, just the disclaimers as well, uh, the usual ones. I'm not charging a fee for this interview. I do hold shares personally. Uh, which is a long-term position. I'm not trading them. <clears throat> and nothing in this podcast is financial advice. And as always, please do your own research. So the obligatory first question, Richard, <laughs> do you want to give us a, a briefing on the uh, on the two uh, formats of your, of your business? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I suppose ultimately our umbrella company, if you like, XP, a factory, so that's the experience factory, sits above two very fast-growing um, brands in the leisure space, and specifically in the experiential leisure space. So on the one hand, we have Escape Hunt. Um, we've had that business now for around five years, and that is the global leader in escape room experiences. Um, it is a franchise business internationally. It is a company-owned business in the UK, um, and I'm sure we'll talk further on about its scale um, further into this podcast. Um, our other business, which is much more newly acquired, is Boom Battle Bar. And that is in the competitive socialising space specifically. So what do I mean by that? I mean it's um, a collection of bars which, again, operate under company ownership and franchise where customers come together to throw axes, to play crazy golf, to play augmented reality darts, shuffleboarding, whatever the experiences might be. And that, and that offer is anchored by food and drink, so cocktail menus, street food. Okay, great. And I think it's worth readers having a look at TripAdvisor as well, another review site, because I've done that myself. And both formats are really popular. You're getting fantastic reviews, aren't you? Well, I think that's one of, for me, the absolute key focuses that we have as a business. Um, you know, I'm blessed to have wonderful teams in place. Um, you know, if I take the escape hunt side first, we've been five-star rated across TripAdvisor really since inception which has been fantastic, absolutely a testament to the team. And on the boom side, you know, yes, of course, we obsess about it. So, you know, I'm not, not suggesting for a second we couldn't do better, but we certainly obsess about that focus on the customer. I think it's a very good long-term marker for potential likely success. Yeah. Okay. And now the other thing I particularly like about this share, which is why I bought some myself, apart from the fact that the formats are, are obviously working, is, is the extremely rapid rollout um, can you run us through the site numbers, how they've grown over, say, the last year and what you're planning are in future? Yeah, I will. I mean, if, if you don't mind, Paul, I might even step back just one year previously. Mm. Um, yep. And, you know, it's, I, I don't really want to get bogged down in COVID, but I think it is interesting as a reference point to talk about where we were as a business just prior to that. So as we ran into 2020, um, we, we had eight owner-operated sites trading uh, on the escape hunt side in the UK, plus a franchise network. And we, we, we're just in the process of opening our ninth. If you fast forward um, to, to today, we have um, 21 owner-operated escape hunts trading, company-owned escape hunts, that is. Um, you know, so really rapid expansion in the growth of that business. But of course, in addition, what we now have is the acquisition of Boom. So 
in November last year when we acquired that business, it was sat there with six sites, um, two company-owned and four franchised. And if we're sat today, we have 21 sites trading in the UK. If you ask me this question next week, we'll have 22, and the week after we'll have 23. And indeed, we've set out a goal to have 27 trading by the end of the year, which will be split um, uh, 11-16, so 11 company-owned and 16 franchised. So really very, very significant rates of growth over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So by the end of this calendar year, you'll have almost 50 sites trading on the two brands, won't you? Is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, um, yes, in, in the UK, that is true. Plus, we have circa 25 um, uh, in, the, in the international territories franchise for escape hunts. Oh, I didn't realize it was that many. OK, maybe we could um, veer off the agenda then and, and, and talk about the franchise side of that. Um, so, so I believe on the Boom Battle bars, it's you charge the franchisee 10% of, of, of revenues. Is, is that right? Yeah, on both businesses we do. So it's a 10% royalty um, on sales on both businesses. That's correct. Yeah, okay. That seems a lot because, I mean, from my days in retail years and years ago, I mean, I, I know retail and hospitality are slightly different, but the economics are quite similar in some ways. You know, um, a site... I'm thinking back, you know, a good site might make, say, a 20% margin. So if you were giving half of that as a royalty away, that would be quite a bit. But, you know, a, a site that's struggling probably wouldn't reach 10% royalty. So, I mean, how, do, how does that stack up? Do you think that 10% royalty fee is sustainable? You know, I, I would draw you to perhaps, first of all, some of the distinctions between maybe those models that you, um, you, that you used to work with yourself and actually what we see. Um, you know, we, in, in our interim results, which we published, um, we made specific reference on Escape Hunt, for example. And we said that in, in the UK, we delivered an EBITDA on a site level of 39% on the Escape Hunt business over that first half. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you think about that, obviously, it still leaves a very attractive returns on capital, um, a return on capital model for a franchisee um, getting very point. strong yeah. returns. And yeah. so, so, so and the, and the point why our businesses are perhaps a little different to what you may have experienced yourself previously is our GPs are very, very high. So on the escape hunt side, we don't really have cost of goods. You know, once you've built the site, yes, of course, we're paying team, but that's, you know, a little bit fixed and broadly variable. And of course, there are property costs and then, you know, whatever your peripherals are in and around marketing. But that traditional cost of goods model that you might have in a restaurant business or you might have in retail or you do have in retail per se, we don't have. So the shape of the P&L is very different. And if you compare that to Boom, you know, I'm, I'm not sat here suggesting that we're going to be delivering 39% margin in Boom. That would be high. We do have some cost of goods, but it's an awful lot lower than in a lot of sort of pseudo comparable businesses in the industry. If you think about our GPs in Boom, we don't, um, you know, our games GP is very, very high. Once you've built the games, as you can imagine, the variable costs to run them are very, very low. And similarly, um, you know, we're such a heavy wet-led um, operation. Um, so certainly, you know, food and, food and drink is not in any way equal. Food is materially higher, a, um, a sort of share of share of purchase than, than um, so, sorry, drink is materially higher as a share mm. than food. And it has high GP. So again, if you're talking 80% GP on drink, very little food and even higher GPs on game, we land at, you know, mid 80s, mid to high 80s GP on that business as well. So I think that there is a fundamental difference between our kinds of businesses and perhaps some which you have um, experienced in the past. 
Yeah, very good points. Um, and on the franchise fee, again here, I'm jumping about a bit. Sorry if I'm disorientating you with the questions. Uh, so the franchise sites, um, you get this 10% royalty. Um, yeah. You've explained why that works, and I, I take those points. So what services do you provide for them? Do you do centralized buying of, of food and drink, for example, or marketing? Yeah. It, it, exactly. So, so there's, a, there's an awful lot of service that goes into that. So um, f- first of all, we're helping sit alongside um, where required franchisees to, 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 you know, to take their sites in the first place. So it's very regular for us to countersign a lease based on our covenant for the franchisee to go into. And that is a really, really valuable addition because given our size, given our covenant strength, it means we can realize capital contributions for franchisees, which they would not be able to do on their own. And, you know, given that our capital contributions on Boom can easily be half a million pounds per site, that is a very, very significant additional benefit, which you get right off the bat. If you then get more into the operation of the business, of course, what we have centrally is a really significant and highly experienced team across all areas. So, um, you know, be that marketing, be that operations, be that food, be it commercial. And all of our franchisees get to benefit from that experience in a way that you couldn't afford to have equivalent people if you're running a small number of sites yourself. So, so you know, we're heavily involved in that aspect. We obviously provide the websites, the booking engines, the service that um, you know, are required, not for all sites, but if sites wish us to do so, we're happy to provide the um, corporate uh, corporate sales. We're happy to provide PPC support, you know, et cetera. So there's an awful lot of stuff which we can do for our franchisees for that money. But fundamentally, you're able, or, you know, as a franchisee, you're able to access expertise which you couldn't afford to pay for as a one, two, three site operator. Yeah, I see. And do you have a centralized EPOS system for the owned company-owned sites as well as the franchise sites? Uh, yes, we do. Oh, brilliant. So you can monitor exactly what's going on at site level and intervene if you need to and so on. And that's exactly right. And as you would imagine, I'm talking probably more to boom here in the UK, but as you would imagine, um, there is very much a commonality across menu, across offer, etc. So that, that leads itself not only to having you know, the benefits across EPOS, but it also leads you exactly to your point into buying. So we buy centrally, particularly on the drink side, so we can access much better pricing than you'd be able to do on your own. So it's all of those things that come together to make a more attractive package. Yeah, that all makes sense. So so talking then about the individual site setup, I'm, I'm staggered that you're saying that the landlord cash contributions can be as much as half a million pounds. Um, I mean, presumably the capex wouldn't be an awful lot more than that, would it? Well, I think, I think what you're doing, Paul, is touching on one of the sort of most pertinent points about you know why we're excited about the business. Because, you know, if, if we've got, let's, let's, let's make the maths easy. If we've got £800,000 um, of gross capital expenditure in an average boom site, which is, you know, broadly where we're landing, um, you, you know, that, that's not necessarily going to be a massive boom site. But let's say nominally it does one and a half million pounds of sales in a year. So then you're, you're, you're there, um, you know, £30,000 a week. We would expect, um, you, you know, we're already we've talked about in, in the interim that we on the owner-operated side are already, despite the business being young and still very much maturing, we're seeing the sites delivering, you know, EBITDAs in the mid-20%. So, so even if you scale that back and you say that you can get to 20%, um, for argument's sake, on a site at £1.5 million of sales, then, you know, that's £300,000 uh, of EBITDA. 
Yeah. And so you set that against your net build cost. So you're 800 gross, half a million pounds capital contribution. It's a one-year payback, and, isn't it? And it's a one-year payback. And, and what that wow. doesn't include is the fact that often you have rent-free periods over and above. So oh, your cash really? on cash is actually more aggressive. I mean, just for readers who are not that familiar, maybe, with retail, commercial sites and leases, these are prime sites in many cases that you would have been paying a premium to get into prior to yeah. you know a few years ago and paying a rent of probably double or more the current levels is, is that yeah I think, I think that's i think that's absolutely fair so you know cert- certainly historically you paid rent premiums to take sites uh, to take sites back mm-hmm. from landlords um you know that, that sort of somewhat died a death obviously as you would imagine through covid um, and, and the incentivization for landlords to let sites, particularly to businesses like ours that can take large space where there is a lot less competition um, and, and will move quickly, uh, you know, then, then those deals are attractive. So, you know, it's, it was one of the founding theses behind wanting to buy Boom in the first place. You know, one of the exam questions was how do we make the most of a market which we consider to be you know, a bit of a, it sounds a bit cliche, but almost like sort of once in a generation on the property site. And, um, you know, large footprint has to be part of that answer um, and mm-hmm. scale has to be the other. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been pretty attractive so far. Yeah, and obviously, again, one of the bull points that I like about this business and why I bought shares in it is because you haven't got any of the historical, well, not much, I don't think, historical baggage of over-rented sites and that sort of thing, whereas larger competitors like the big pub groups don't really have a, much of a point of difference. And they're, you know, they, they could well have a long tail of sites that they're now paying uneconomically high rents on them. Well, it's, it's certainly true to say that over the last three years, rent rents, generally speaking, have absolutely been rebased. Mm. And, and and you're right, um, because we're a young business, we, we, we don't have that mechanism. So, um, yeah, we, we, we feel, you know, certainly well positioned, as we said. Yeah. And now the rate of growth expansion in site numbers is so huge. Um, but I appreciate a lot of them are franchised, so you don't have to worry about the day-to-day managing of them. But can you handle such rapid expansion um, as is happening at the moment? And is there a risk of you making some serious mistakes along the way? You know, I'm never going to sit here and suggest that rolling out any business, regardless of scale, doesn't come with some risks. You know, there is no there is no rollout site business in the world that hasn't opened a site that it thought it was going to do something and it did something else, etc. So there are always inherent risks in any rollout business. But that said, in our particular case, I think a lot of them are quite manageable. So, you know, we, we, we wouldn't have got into this if we didn't believe that we had a very, very, very high caliber team in place. And if, you, if for, for any of your listeners who may have been following our business um, from, you know, a couple of years ago and, and even previously, we always said that we had put in place a disproportionately high quality team for the size of the business because we expected to get to the point where we'd grow very aggressively. And I suppose that now is starting to pay its dividends. And, you know, what, what I talked earlier about obsessing about these customer reviews. Well, that's really one of the key markers of whether or not you're getting it right. You can't just open a site and move on. It's open a site and then execute it, and deliver and deliver and deliver. And so it becomes very obvious very quickly if we are getting that wrong. So, so you know, yes, it has been a very aggressive year for growth. Um, we've had, um, you know, and that has put a significant amount of pressure on our very, very strong team. That said, we're getting to the end of it now, um, you know, certainly through this year. 
And, you know, the team are still standing. They're still wonderfully resilient. And if I'm honest, it's been really exciting for them to just get behind it. So, you know, are we going to do such crazy bonkers growth again? Absolutely not, because we don't need to. You know, we we talk about having 35 boom sites by the end of next year. That's eight on 27, which is very, very different to 21 over 26. I'm so sorry, 21 over six. Um, so, so it's still a 30% growth um, rate, but actually that's far, far, far easier to manage. But we did it for, I think, a sound strategic reason. If you raise money, the worst thing you can do is leave it sat there in a bank, um, you know, not not working for you. If you know you're going to use it to need to get sites open, why not just crack on and get them open? And then uh, and that actually starts to yield the benefits. So that's what we've done. Um, we will continue to grow, not as quickly, but, um, you know, we're, I think we're heavily through the worst. Yeah, and I mean, the short capital note, uh, which is available on Research Tree, is very interesting uh, because obviously, I mean, I'm largely ignoring the historic numbers in the recent interims because they're not really relevant to where the business is going. But short capital, I mean, that's talking about reaching calendar 2023, so only next year, about wow. 40 million revenues. And of course, the annualized run rate would probably be nearer 50 by the year end or more. So, I mean, yeah. you're building this into a pretty significant business very quickly, aren't you? We're certainly doing our very, very best to do that. Yes, um, and you know, I would, I would obviously flag the clear, you know, the clear and obvious caveat that when you are rolling out so many sites from a base of so little, you know, your likelihood of landing the exact timing of every site and the exact revenues that it's going to do and the week and the day that it opens. I mean, you clearly you're going to get some of that wrong. But, the, but I think the point to take away from that is absolutely the direction of travel. Because, you know, the, the point you make about outturn is exactly the right one. You know, th- this current year that we're in, we will have 27 sites open. And we will, on the booms like we will have 23 owner-operated company-owned sites on the escape pump side. So the outturn from that irrespective of exactly where in the year each one of those sites landed, is really, really powerful. And the same dynamics will be true for next year. Yeah. Now, in terms of the individual sites, have you got any loss-making sites currently? Um, so on the escape side, no. And on the boom side, um, we we do have some sites that are loss-making, but entirely in line with plans. So when you open a new site, you expect to lose money and you budget to lose money for the first few weeks of its operation and for good reason because you're you're deliberately looking to overstaff it because you know what we understand you get an operational gearing effect we've seen this all the way through the escape hunt i've seen in my previous life every single time you open the site staff come in and two things happen one they get a lot better and their effectiveness goes up and their efficiency goes up so then they come down and two you get the leverage effect of sales growth um, as businesses mature so, you know, we will typically open a site on 45% labor. We will um, very quickly expect to see that site running, you know, kind of closer to 30, and then it will track down from there. And so that's, that's, a, 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 that's a percentage of, of net revenues then? Uh, uh, correct. Yes, that's a yeah. percentage of net, re- net, net revenue. And it's for good reason, because, as I say, you, you benefit from effectiveness, and that starts to bring your hours down, and you benefit from sales growth. And one of the things we touched on, I think, in our interims um, was, you know, just what we've seen in a skate punt. And when you recognize that on a skate punt, we talked about it a little bit in, um, in our numbers. On a skate punt now, which um, are, where our earliest sites are five years old here in the UK, 
still underlying in the in post half period we were seeing on um, 8% like for like growth that's a very very significant amount of growth in a like for like counts factor especially when you're consider, you know you're comparing to last year with post covid demand and a VAT benefit that's a very high level of growth now why do i bring that up I bring that up because it makes the point that these sites continue to mature where maturity is the increase in growth over and above an underlying run rate for a very long time, you know, easily two years. So in a business like ours, which has a lot of fixed costs, be it property, be it a large element of labor and not so much cost of goods, the leverage effect is significant. So if you think about that for a skate pump, you know, I talked about delivering 39% EBITDA at at a site level over H1. Well, we certainly didn't open at that point. And, you know, that is compounded by efficiency and, and operational gearing and leverage. The same will be true for Boom. So you expect to lose money, you plan to lose money, and then as you grow over, God willing, a very prolonged period of time, you then start to see very, very significant flow-throughs as you get your operational leverage. And that's what we're seeing in, our earliest, um, in, in the earlier sites for Boom, which we opened. Okay, so just um, focusing then on the initial opening period, that loss-making period is, is how long? How many weeks or months are we talking? We, we, we normally talk about 8 to 12, um, eight to 12 weeks with, with the losses diminishing each time. That said, um, as you can imagine, um, you start to see that period shrinking significantly. So again, we talked about it um, with, with the interim, but on, on a skate hunt as a counterfactual, uh, you know, we, we used to run at losses for at least 12 weeks of those businesses, and then they came good, and then they start really delivering exactly in line. Whereas then, actually, the, the most recent sites hit the ground running in sort of two to three weeks Brilliant. for a whole load of reasons. Um, you know, largely because you can train staff in other venues, so they hit the ground running, but you understand exactly what the levers are that work best for marketing, PPC, digital, all that kind of good stuff. The same is true for Boom. So, um, you know, you'll start to see when we opened our first owner-operated site in Lakeside, it was really difficult because you haven't got anywhere else to train the team. What are you going to do? So you're training in real time, whereas, you know, we, we opened Exeter, um, when would that have been, about four months ago now, the team were all trained in the O2, in service, they hit the ground running, and the, and the run to profitability was incredibly quick. And so, you know, each site, in theory, should get a little bit easier. Brilliant. Um, just just uh, going back to the site capex, uh, a follow-up point on that that I forgot to ask at the time. You were saying typically 800k uh, fit-out cost capex mm-hmm. for a boom uh, site, and half a million um, cash contribution from the landlord. So, what part does the franchisee play in that? Do you give them the benefit of the whole 500k landlord? Yes, we do. Or, oh right, okay, brilliant. Well, that's that's very significant, isn't it? So it's, it's it's in our best interests um, yeah. strategically that the franchise network can show really strong returns on their own investment as well. You know the extent to which you can do that facilitates the, you know facilitates the speed at which you can grow more franchisees. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? And of course, if there's a downturn in business, it doesn't particularly affect you. You you have a linear relationship with with revenue, don't you? Um, Correct, we do. I mean, obviously, underlying, it's not great. You want your franchisees to clearly be making money. Um, and, you know, God willing, you want them to be making a lot of money, but you're right. We take a share of revenue. So if, if sales take a bit of a dip on the franchise business, it doesn't directly impact us, well, not much. And I suppose if the franchisee, say if we have an absolutely dire economic depression, if the franchisee fails, 
you then take you, you you have the master lease, I believe, so you take over the site yourselves. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, we've got full step in. Yeah. So I suppose in worst case scenario, that could mean that the franchisee's problems rebound on you. Um, I guess you know, in the absolute worst case scenario, it could mean that. I think though that you have to take a slightly longer term view and. You know, on average, as much as there are clearly consumer headwinds at the moment, you know, we've talked about the mad infinitum, um, or certainly, you know, the press talks about it at infinitum. As much as those headwinds clearly exist, um, and it would be remiss to fail to acknowledge them, fundamentally, you know, markets get through that. And, you know, recessions don't last forever on average. So even if there were a, you know, a, a tough period for, you know, you know, a number of months, you would expect to see, particularly on the boom side, alcohol-led businesses come good. You know, alcohol has for generations galvanized togetherness. It's brought people, you know, together to make memories, have fun. It's hard to see how that disappears. Mm, yeah. And you, you mentioned on the Vox uh, podcast that uh, points about your customer being, being not particularly, you know, they're fully employed at the moment, aren't they? And not that susceptible to utility bills, maybe. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, again, I, I kind of reiterate the same point. I, I don't want to sort of sit here being complacent about the very obvious dynamics that, you know, are going on in the world. But I do think our subset of customer is quite well insulated. You know, I, you're, you're right. I talked with Vox about the fact that that 20, 20 to 35 year old customer is most likely employed um, because, I mean, let's, let's you know, look at the macros. Unemployment is incredibly low across the country right now. So on average, they're going to be um, they're going to be employed. You know, a lot less mortgage pressure. You know, there's a big mm. renting um, sort of dynamic there. Utilities probably not the most you know enormous part of uh, part of um, sort of overall monthly take home. So we're, we're certainly feeling at the moment like there hasn't been much of a discernible you know downturn for us. I mean, I just talked about escape hunt like five underlying. I mean, that's I suppose fairly self-evident that it's not yet showing in that business. Whilst they don't have an equivalent counterfactual for Boom because it's too young, you do have to, you know, what, what am I seeing? I'm seeing sites that are growing week on week. I'm seeing records being set by at least a site in the network pretty much every week. You know, is it possible that it could have been going faster? Yeah, I guess it is because we don't have a counterfactual to compare to, but it still feels pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing I like about this share is that uh, personally, I'm finding going to going to the pub for a, a few pints, or whatever is now it's almost like for me personally, it's gone beyond a tipping point. You know, when I'm asked to pay in London six pound fifty for a pint of beer, you just think to yourself, it's too expensive. And yeah. all the bars are the same. You just go in there, you sit down, you maybe meet someone and talk to them. And it's all a bit dull, if I'm honest. Whereas what I like about your thing is this, the both formats are a destination it's it's something different and you're you know people are having an experience and then you sell them drinks almost as a sideline i mean so that to me says it's probably going to be more robust than general pubs i mean is that accurate do you think well you know certainly that's my thesis um and i think for a number of reasons i think that you know within venues like ours um, it's important to distinction about the fact that we're very much a multi-gaming activity unit as well because you know you might not like axe throwing and somebody else might not like the art but actually 
you know, you've got a whole bunch of other stuff to pick. So, so because we're not doubling down on one form of game, and because there are other things that keep you amused, that competitive nature, which is such a human instinct, isn't it, between mates, to, mm. to you know, to, to compete, to have fun, to have a bit of banter over some games. It's hard for me to see how that disappears. That just seems like quite a fundamental sort of human desire. The fact you can have you, you can have some you know great cocktails alongside it or pints or whatever it might be. You know, it, it feels to me like that's a that's a business for the longer term. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of my readers flagged up on escape hunt. Um, one of the Stockopedia readers said he'd visited, I think, one of the sites twice, and he said that although the rooms are different, uh, different themed and decorated, and so on, he thought that the sort of concept and the method of thinking of, about how to escape was pretty similar. So his uh, argument is well, he's questioning the whether whether the format the concept might become stale over time and people get tired of it and what sort of creative process you have for refreshing that sure so you know it's not necessarily an unreasonable point i mean escape rooms i suppose by their definition are to a degree a little bit similar insofar as that is the type of entertainment that it is in the same way that playing crazy golf is playing crazy golf with respect to what course you play it on that said, I guess a couple of points with Escape Hunt. One is that it's a really low-dense model. So, you, you know, we get those... Um, that, Sorry, what? Low-dense, low, 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 low forgive me. So, and what I mean by that is um, we need a very small number of people in the grand scheme to come through in a week day. Oh, I see. In order density, to make that. Yeah. yeah, so... Um, yeah, yes, excuse me. So, um, you know, so, so those box economics that we've always talked about in Escape Hunt, you know, typically we've talked about targets of £10,000 a week of sales, £3,000 a week of... Um, profits and obviously we've just talked previously about how we're actually achieving relative to that but but that's predicated in you know circa 80 people coming through um, per day it's not a very high density model by any stretch so if people do decide you know what i've done a couple of escape rooms i'm not so sure that i want to do another then actually given the scale and the sizes of the towns that we're in i would i would argue that there are likely to be you know enough people who are still to experience it and certainly that's being borne out in numbers at the moment we've never refreshed a route in our ownership of escape hunt and yet so, you know you, you've seen the like for like growth or we've just talked about the like for like growth um but again were that thesis to bear out and were it to be true that actually people fall out of love with the escape room category you know and again, I feel it's unlikely because it is so new, whereas concepts, you know, traditional leisure concepts, be it bowling, be it um, going to the or whatever it might be, have stood the test of time for years and years and years. But if, if I were to sort of get behind the idea that it's true and people fall out of love with it, the key point is that the rooms we now build are entirely modular. So they can come in as much as they can come out. And if it is true that, you know, people want something different, then actually we're set up. We have a games design team internally. They're always looking for new inspiration, how you start to move the dial. And the rooms are built in a modular fashion so they can come out quite easily. You'd swap out. Yeah. And presumably that's true of Boom as well, I would imagine. I, I was peering through the windows of the Bournemouth site that's currently fitting out. I live, in, yeah. I live in Bournemouth most of the time, and I'm right. itching to mystery shop it with a couple of friends and uh, report back. But I could see that quite a, a few of the games that are being built in there 
looked like they could pretty easily be be changed out. And uh, well, well, that was that. That's the whole point. Um, you, you know, there are some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful competitors in our space who have absolutely doubled down on a particular type of um, of competitive socialising. You know, be it darts, be it golf, be it table tennis, be it whatever it is. Um, we, we haven't done that quite deliberately because you know. There will almost certainly, I mean, it's, it's impossible to sit here and suggest that over the next two, three, five, ten years, there won't be new, really interesting things that come to market that people think about that we're going to want to get behind. So having a modular build is really important to us. Yeah, makes sense. And we're running out of, well, we've gone a bit over, but it doesn't matter, does it? So <laughs> I'll make this the last question. Um, now, cash. I see you raised about £15 million in a placing in November 2021. That was to power fund Boom. And then you've got deferred consideration on Boom. That was at 30 pence a share. And I, I, the, the, the deferred consideration, I think you very cannily fixed the share price, didn't you? So even though the share price is now halved, that won't result in additional dilution. Is that, is that no, right? That's, that, that's absolutely right. So just to be really, really clear on that, because I, I think a couple of commentators have misinterpreted that. Mm. Um, you know, we have a contingent liability on balance sheet, and that contingent liability in round numbers is kind of nine and a half million quid, whatever, it's, whatever yeah. it is. To be really clear, that is a slightly nuanced accounting treatment that forces you to recognise um, to recognise that um, contingent liability. Starting at the starting at the share price, and then with an expectation for growth, and with an expectation for the um, cost of capital, which sees it being valued out at I think something like forty three, forty four pence per share, something in that ballpark. But to be absolutely clear, there is um, it is not pegged to price. It is a number of shares. It's twenty five million shares which yeah. get allocated. There is no cash settlement, and there is no true up to price. Yeah, well, luckily I did my research properly on Stockopedia and I spotted this. <laughs> so you can Thank base you. it. <laughs> so basically, although your net tangible asset value on the balance sheet is currently negative, you can basically cross out that 9.8 million provisions figure and, and then increase the share count from 150 million to 175 million, roughly. And, 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 that's, and that's exactly correct. I think the, you know, the key point is the extent to which that's fully settled is a good news story because it means that we, you know, that earnout was predicated in a number of things. It's not just the number of sites that's split between company owned and franchises, it's about the delivery of sales, etc. So it is a good thing for the business, the extent to which that is fully paid out. Yeah, brilliant. And so, so last question then on so, so the balance sheet looks okay, I would say. And as now you got, I think just over was it five million cash remaining? Yeah, five point two and a half. Um, yeah, yeah, which is is not tight, but it's kind of not not overly um, comfortable either, I would say, given the the pace of expansion. So, I mean, what's your view on? Uh, another placing at some point just to top up the cash reserve sure well, well I mean, I'll, I'll get i'll answer that directly but just just prior to i would sort of suggest that actually you know you you mentioned clearly that we raised um the, the capital in november I, I just want to make the point that it's not all it is not true to say that all of that capital was growth capital obviously 10 million pounds in round numbers of that was you know the acquisition of the business that went out in cash so to, to, to use that as an idea, so that contextualizes the extent to which we've rolled out on the actual amount of cash that we've required to do it, given that £10 million was for the acquisition. Yeah, so, so that is given, um, so, sorry, I do think that's important given the number of sites. So, so with that is given, I guess, you know, actually we feel, you know, we, we feel pretty good right now because we are very much in the trough 
I would say, and there are a number of reasons for that, um, not least that we have to build a lot of our company-owned sites ahead of receiving our, comp- uh, our um, cash uh, contributions back from the landlord. So yeah. we've got a number of contributions still to come back. Um, and also, we're a very long way already into building the rest of the company-owned stores that we've talked about um, and paying for, therefore, the company-owned stores that we've talked about having open by the end of the year. So, so we feel that we're in actually really quite a good place. And, and whilst I talk about, you know, doing another eight sites um, next year split between franchise and company-owned, um, and indeed we have a pipeline to support that, mm-hmm. the, the critical point is if, let, let's say, you know, the, the consumer really turned against us and actually demand does drop, I think the fortunate position we're now in, we don't need to do those sites in order to be cash generative, profitable as a company. Getting to critical mass so quickly was really important so that we had a base from which we could sustain ourselves. And that, again, gives you levers. So, you know, we don't have to open into the you know, into these sites, you know, if something unfolded that was unexpected. So I'd say we're quite well positioned. And moreover, um, you know, as you can start, uh, as you can start to show as a company that you are more profitable and you know, and you're delivering profitability on a more sustained basis, then debt financing in a number of assets does become a little more available to you. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, actually, one of our suppliers um, might be able to provide a debt finance were we to wish to go down that route. Um, you know, if we wanted to accelerate further expansion. So certainly, um, as we sit today notwithstanding any significant change in macroeconomic headwinds, we, we feel that we're in a pretty good place. Yeah, it sounds pretty flexible, doesn't it? So the 50-odd sites at the end of this year, would that be, in, in a worst-case scenario, if the economy then tanks, could you just operate those? Would, would they run at cash, uh, cash flow positive level? Yeah, I mean, no, assu- no assuming, more openings? assuming that demand doesn't absolutely fall off a cliff, then yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Well, we probably uh, rambled on for long. Sorry, no, I didn't mean to be rude. <laughs> I, I've, I, I'll stop asking questions now and leave it there, Richard. That's really, really interesting. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, hopefully, oh, well, are there any final points you want to cover that we haven't um, mentioned as yet? No, I think, um, Paul, I think you've covered all the pertinent points. Good. Um, so, so, yes, and many, many thanks. Really appreciate your time. Not at all. And I look forward to uh, trying out the Bournemouth site and putting some daft pictures up and giving you some feedback. <laughs> Fantastic. Can't wait. And try it because, you know, it's an escape hunt there as well. So escape hunt. Yes, it's a joint one, isn't it? Try both. Yeah, I'll try exactly both. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> thanks again, Paul, Richard. Paul, thanks so much. Take care. Cheers. Bye for now. Bye.